BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod, where, with your help, we tackle the big issues facing us today as Americans and try to focus on some solutions. Today, one issue not a lot of people are talking about, but should be, because if you look at the growing number of homeless families on the streets of our cities, or if you've talked to any young couple just starting out and trying to buy their first home, you know there's a serious problem with affordable housing in this country. One man has devoted his entire life to this issue. He's the former mayor of San Antonio, Texas, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Barack Obama, and now a candidate for President of the United States. But today, Julian Castro takes time out from preparation for this week's first Democratic debate to talk about the housing issue with us. Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. There's no doubt there's a climate change crisis facing this country. There's a health care crisis facing this country. Uh, is there a housing crisis facing America? Uh, absolutely. We have an affordability crisis in this country right now. And it's not just in these usual suspect cities like Boston or New York or San Francisco, uh, Chicago. It's everywhere. Uh, many people have said, for instance, and it's true, that if you're working minimum wage full time, there's not a single county uh, where you can afford the rent for a two-bedroom apartment. Whoa. And today, we see more and more families that are spending 40, 50, 60 percent of their income in rent. At the same time, our home ownership rate is still at one of the lowest levels in the last 40 years after the housing crisis that we went through uh, you know, over the last several years where many folks lost their homes. So you add all of that up, and what we see is more people are having to double up with relatives. More people are living in their car. We see an increase in the last couple of years of unsheltered homelessness, in other words, people sleeping on the streets. So, yes, there is very much a, uh, an affordability crisis. Is the American dream of uh, someday growing up, getting married, and owning your own home kind of disappeared? Well, I mean, there's no question that, that that's been harder to achieve for this generation. We see young people today, they're taking longer uh, to buy their first home. Uh, of course, a, you know, a decade ago, we went through this housing crisis where a lot of people lost their homes. And so that, that dream that you know, my parents and my grandparents had, um, it's still there. I think it's still a very worthy dream, but it's something that we need to make sure we uh, make more possible for Americans today because a lot of them are very far off from being able to save enough um, and, and buy a home. And is it a, a shortage uh, of availability or affordability or both? It's both of those things. Uh, the way I think about it is if we're going to solve this problem, we need to actually invest in both. 
We need to create more housing supply, which will help with affordability, but we also need to put more resources into the hands of especially people who are middle class, who are working poor, and people who are poor. And you mentioned it's not just the big cities, right? Um, where like San Francisco, where you might expect it. Yeah, I mean, of- all of us know. That's right. Over the years, we all know. You know, people have heard about the big challenge that places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Boston have with rising rents, and they're very unaffordable to most Americans and to most people that live even in those metro areas. However. Uh, yeah, I've been to places like Des Moines, Iowa lately. I've been to, uh, when I was HUD secretary, uh, rural Wisconsin uh, and other communities that are you know, not these big cities, they're small towns. They also see rents that are rising and that it's harder and harder for people to find a place to live that's safe and decent. So this is, this is a, an important point. And I'll just say also, Bill, This is why everybody, no matter who you are, including politicians, whether you're Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, why you should care about this, because there are folks of all different stripes in big cities and in small towns, Republican districts and Democratic districts that are impacted right now by this housing affordability crisis. Yeah, red states and blue states, right? I I saw, uh, by by the way, reinforcing your point— a little article about Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, which is not a great big metropolis, but they did a little survey. They 40 out of 68 of the firefighters for the Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, had to work a second job just to pay their rent. You know, That's a, just, that is amazing. I had not seen that, but it's not surprising. Uh, you know, I was in Oakland about a month ago and visited a middle school, and uh, one of the administrators there was telling me about a teacher uh, that they'd heard um, was sleeping in her car because she could no longer afford to live in a home in that area, which is, you know, that Bay Area, of course, just the rents have been uh, spiking like crazy. So it's not surprising. Among all the candidates, you are the one who's spoken most forcefully, uh, uh, I believe, about this issue, Julian, and, and you've come up with a big bold new plan this week, which I want to, I want you to tell us about, but uh, it, as sort of introduction to that, is a solution a private sector solution or a government solution? Well, it's going to require both of those things, but it's going to require a lot more federal investment. One of the things that I call for in my People First housing plan is, for instance, that we make the Housing Choice Voucher Program an entitlement program and fully fund it to provide a housing choice voucher to people that make less than 50% of an area's median income. So that's, you know, that's a big investment. That's not, you know, that's not small. But that would also mean that we go a long way to addressing this affordability crisis and making sure that people have a place to live. Is this the so-called Section 8 housing? It is. It is. And, um, you know, over the years, uh, the I think the program has done a lot of good for a lot of families. I'd be lying, and I think most of the listeners probably know that over the years, the Section 8 developed this stigma to it. But mm-hmm. what people should know is that the folks who were um, 
receiving these vouchers, right? They're hardworking folks like anybody else, and they're just trying to provide for their families and to make a better life. Uh, and one of the things that I address in my plan as well is making sure that if somebody has a Section 8 voucher, that that landlord, um, because that's good money, you know, that's guaranteed money from that renter and from the federal government, that they'll actually be able to get into a home. Because too many times people with one of those vouchers are discriminated against in the sense that the landlord uh, will reject them just because they have a preconceived notion of the kind of people, so to speak, that must be on this program. It's now, uh, you, you, you said you'd like to see 100% coverage, I guess, of people uh, who want to get into this program. What is the coverage today, uh, the funding today? Well, uh, today, only about one out of four people who qualify for housing choice vouchers are actually able to get one. So 75% of the people um, who would be eligible you know, don't qualify. And these are folks that generally you know, are making, um, you know, they may be making 40% of an area median income, 50% mm -hmm. an area median income. So they're not, you know, these are not uh, well-to-do people. Uh, a lot of them working hard, you know, they're working hard, but they're not making that much money. If we expand that program to 100%, such as you propose, um, have you calculated the cost and how we would pay for it? Yeah. So my um, housing plan overall, the cost would be about $970 billion uh, over 10 years. During the course of the campaign, you know, just like I've started rolling out policy proposals on immigration, housing, education, policing, and so forth, I'm going to roll out my policy proposal on how I would pay for these programs. But a preview of that is, number one, I would repeal and replace the Trump tax cuts, replace them with legislation and a tax code that actually rewards people who are working and not only wealthy corporations or very wealthy individuals. Secondly, I would raise the top marginal tax rate. You know, it's time that we do that mm -hmm. because we have to expect people at the top to pay their fair share. We also, I would, I would close uh, certain loopholes that uh, wealthy interests with their powerful lobbyists in Washington, D.C. have gotten through the years. And then fourth, I would actually look for ways that are not necessarily, means that are not necessarily in the tax code, but have been very effective at funding some of these programs. A good example of that is the National Housing Trust Fund. The National Housing Trust Fund was started in 2015, and it provides funding for housing for people that are extremely low income. They make less than 30 percent of an area median income. So these are the poorest of the poor. That's funded by a transaction fee on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, mm -hmm. what are known as the government-sponsored entities. Uh, so you know we can find ways like that, a transaction fee or other type of mechanism uh, that is not directly in that tax code to actually provide revenue for these initiatives. I guess underlying your program is a basic concept um, you know, we hear all the time that basic quality, affordable health care is a fundamental American right. Do you believe basic, affordable, quality housing is a fundamental American right? I do. Uh, I've said I see housing as, as more than an American right, as a human right, that, um, that everybody should have a 
safe, decent place to live, a roof over their head. It's a fundamental need, even more so that we live in the wealthiest nation in the world, the wealthiest nation that has ever existed. So, yeah, I think we should treat it as a human right. We are now three years into the Trump presidency. What impact has Trump and his policies had on the uh, on this housing crisis? Uh, he's dropped the ball. Uh, I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, between 2010 and 2016, uh, in the Obama administration, uh, and I, you know, I was part of this the last two and a half years, but cannot take anywhere near full credit for this. But we saw a 47% reduction in veteran homelessness in this nation. Whoa. Over the last couple of years, that number has started to rise again. In addition to that, um, chronic homelessness has started to go up again. In a lot of communities in the United States, as I mentioned earlier, more people are sleeping in the streets. So this hasn't been a priority for this administration. And worse than that, they've proposed cutting the HUD budget by 16 percent. Uh, you know, they've proposed cuts to important programs that would alleviate the, the challenge with homelessness and create more affordability. So, you know, this, this administration has been bad for those of us who want to make sure that everybody has a safe, decent, affordable place to live. Uh, and speaking of the administration, that policy, of course, is under the under now the watch of uh, Secretary Ben Carson. Uh, we know he doesn't know what an REO is, <laughs> right? He, he thought it was <laughs> that is true. He thought it was a cookie, um, <laughs> but but he's come forth with some policies like evicting all illegal immigrants from any public housing, um, uh, raising the rent for tenants in subsidized housing. Uh, these are the yeah. things you're talking about, I believe. Yeah, this is um, – it's like they try and find every single way that they can terrorize immigrant families, whether it's when they come to the border and ask for asylum and separating mothers from children or keeping people in limbo for years, or in this case, this rule that um, – Secretary Carson and, and HUD is moving forward with, to say, basically, if you're in a mixed-status family, in other words, if, if you may have a family that's living in public housing where one person is undocumented out of a family of four or three, that you're going to be kicked out because of that. And it's estimated that tens of thousands of uh, children will be impacted by that decision if they go through with it. Uh, it's the wrong thing to do. It's inhumane. Uh, it's going to hurt American citizens also because many of these families include American citizens. It's going to destabilize neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, if I were president, my administration would make sure that, um, that we respect uh, the basic humanity of everybody in this country. And, you know, we would avoid scapegoating or targeting families like this. And, of course, we saw uh, at uh, Donald Trump's big reelection rally in Orlando uh, that the theme of his 2016 campaign, anti-immigrant theme, 
of 2016 and of his presidency so far is going to be the cornerstone of his reelection campaign. Uh, in fact, he has announced that uh, this week uh, ICE is going to uh, begin a massive roundup of people who had come here illegally, uh, um, affecting who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people and trying to deport them all. Um, whether realistic or not, what what do you think of that policy? It's cruel. It's more evidence that he's failed on this issue of immigration. You know, if you think about it, there's a much better way to do this. Um, last month, we had 144,000 people come to our southern border, mostly from countries like Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala. But this wasn't the first time that that had happened. You know, a few years ago, in, in 2014, we had a wave of people coming to the southern border. So the minute that Donald Trump became president, he knew that this was a big issue. Here we are two and a half years later, and he hasn't done a single thing to actually get at the root cause of this challenge. If I were president, the first thing that I would have done on January 20th, 2017, would have been to reach out to those countries, to partner with them in a strong way so that people can get safety and opportunity over there instead of having to come to the United States to try and find safety and opportunity. Instead, this guy has created a circus without a solution. And you know, I put forward in early April an immigration plan that just represents a totally different vision of how we can be uh, more effective, more humane, and smarter about this issue of immigration. I want to ask you also, if we can go back just a second before we take a break, about, you mentioned it just a, a little earlier, about the issue of homelessness. I mean, if you walk through San Francisco, walk through Washington, D.C., New York City, uh, there are more and more people you see in these tent cities on the streets, right? Uh, more and more people sleeping in their cars. It, it, does it appear to be getting worse, or is the problem of homelessness really getting worse, and why? Well, I mean, I think we have to start by acknowledging that there, that for many years there have been, you know, homeless Americans sleeping on the streets. But during the Obama administration, because we were working hard on that issue, we made it a priority. We actually saw a reduction by about 10 percent during those mm -hmm. years in homelessness, including that 47 percent reduction in veteran homelessness. What's changed is a lack of commitment, a lack of prioritization by this administration. So we do see, it's true that today you do see more people that are sleeping on the streets. It's, you know, called unsheltered homelessness. And um, this administration just doesn't seem to care or they're not up to the challenge of addressing it. Uh, and in fact, they want to cut resources from a HUD budget that is already uh, fairly bare bones. And, you know, I wish that I had better news for those local communities who, you know, people that are out there that are listening, that watch every day um, as their fellow Americans are sleeping on the street or sleeping on, in these tents, and they wonder, well, what in the world, what in the world is happening here? And what is Washington doing to actually partner with us to change this? The answer is that um, there's not enough determination there to change this. We're talking with Secretary Julian Castro, former uh, H. HUD secretary under President Obama. We'll take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and we'll be right back.
back with Secretary Castro in just a moment. We're brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters, those great men and women of our firefighting departments. We see them rushing by all the time on the way to help American families. That's who they are. They're on the front lines protecting American families every day. We count on them. They never let us down. Under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger, we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod and uh, direct you to find out more about their great work at their website, IAFF.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Mr. Secretary, you're very busy these days uh, coming up this week. The first presidential debate. Uh, you are on the first night. Uh, are you happy with that? Or would you I rather am. be on number two? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I'm looking forward to it. You know, these things are, uh, you never know where you're going to end up because it was done by random draw. And I, I'm looking forward to getting up there. As you know, for me, Bill, the first thing that I have to do is introduce myself to a lot of people out there. There are a lot of Americans who uh, may not have had the opportunity to know who I am. Uh, I want to introduce myself, tell them who I am, what I'm about. Uh, and you know what I'm getting ready for is the fact that, hey, there are nine other people on that stage and you have a limited amount of time and you're basically only going to get five or six minutes to talk plus 45 seconds uh, of a closing statement. So I want to make sure that I can convey uh, my vision for the future of the country uh, and also why me, you know, what makes me different from the other candidates. That's the challenge. How do you convey that in a minute that you get? Do you think the rules for the uh, debate of who could qualify and, and, uh, and who not were, were fair or are fair? Uh, I mean, I think that they're fair given um, the place that the DNC is coming from. You know, there, of course, there was a lot of uh, a lot of disappointment in certain quarters about how 2016 was handled. So the DNC went and they tried to devise a way that they've seen as more fair and laid out those rules with ample time for people who wanted to jump into the presidential race to to, you know, abide by them. Do I think that they're necessarily the the most effective at determining um, voter interest or whether somebody could gain support and win? I don't know. I mean, I think, honestly, because this is a new approach, it's, it, it really is a work in progress. And the number one thing I hope is that there's a real evaluation and understanding of how these things worked once, once we get through a couple of these debates. 
Uh, and what and both of these elements, polling and number of donors, have their advantages and their disadvantages. For polling, I mean, if you're if you're not somebody who has run for president before, and you have lower name ID, well, of course you're going to be lower in the polls. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you can't climb. I mean, that's what happened when Bill Clinton started off at two or three percent in 1991. That's what happened to Donald Trump. Even though he was generally known, he started off at 1%. I just saw an NBC poll a couple of days ago that was taken on June 22nd, 2015, and he was at 1% a few days after he announced. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> donor threshold, you know, contributions to campaigns have been basically democratized with the internet, right? People making $10, $15, $25 contributions. Right. At the same time, the way that that's driven can be driven in some ways artificially amped up is through investment in social media advertising on Facebook or Google or also building up a list that is huge enough so that you're naturally going to get a lot more contributions. And for me, I was starting from scratch, you know, having to build that email list up and to raise the money from the get-go. There are other people who were able to transfer money from other campaign accounts immediately to, mm-hmm. to go get those 65,000 donors. So, yeah, you know, there are pluses and minuses to it. And I'm willing to, to – I really am willing to, to give the DNC the benefit of the doubt right now just because I recognize that this is a good faith attempt and a first att- attempt unprecedented to, you know – Figure out a rational way um, where the people have their say, but we do get to a point where, you know, uh, you don't have 20 folks on the stage eventually and folks can focus more on people that have more significant support in the race. Right. In fact, they're already trying to do that, as you know. Um, You have uh, successfully uh, made it to the stage for the first and the second debate. They've... uh, almost doubled the the terms and the, and the rules for the, what's needed in terms of polling and for donations for debates number three and four. Um, how's it look? Are you going to be on stage for three and four? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, of course, nothing is, is uh, said and done until we're there, but I feel good about where we're at in terms of uh, supporting the polls. Over the last couple of months, we have we've had three different polls where I've gotten 2% support. The, the cutoff is you got to get at least 2% support and 130,000 uh, contributions. I have um, you know well over 70,000 contributions, and in these couple of months that we have to close that gap, uh, I'm confident that we can do it. At the same time, you know, if somebody goes on Facebook right now, we got Facebook ads <laughs> up uh, saying, hey, I need to get on the debate stage in September. Will you contribute? And and because of these rules, I mean, that's part of it now. But I do think that uh, based on my growing support and the what we've seen, you know, I was able to qualify on both of those thresholds pretty early compared to some other candidates. I think I will make it. How important, we keep talking, and, you know, my past as uh, Democratic state chair of California, uh, the Latina vote, the Latina vote, we keep hearing about it. How important do you believe it's going to play in 2020? It's going to continue to get more and more important. Um, you know, in 2016, the narrative was, well, what happened to the Latino vote? But it was phenomenally important for Hillary Clinton in a place like Nevada, 
that she carried. And I would argue even in a place like um, Virginia, where the Latino community has grown, in this election cycle, it's going to be important again in Nevada. It's going to be important um, to our hopes of winning a state like Florida. You know, there's a lot of attention that we're going to pay to Florida and getting back those 29 electoral votes, uh, the growing Puerto Rican community, uh, of course, the Cuban-American community and the diverse Hispanic community over there is going to drive that. Also, new states like Arizona and Texas that during the Trump era have turned away from the Republican Party, Kirsten Sinema won in Arizona. Uh, they won a couple of statewide races there as well at state level uh, government offices. So the, the Latino vote is still phenomenally important, and I think it's going to grow. I'm also convinced that if I'm the nominee of the party, that I can go and I can get the 29 electoral votes of Florida, the 11 electoral votes of of uh, Arizona, and even the 38 electoral votes of Texas. Uh, and there are some who say, uh, honestly, Mr. Secretary, uh, that you could probably get um, a great percentage, if not all, of the Latino vote in Texas, and therefore maybe should have run be running for Senate in Texas, not for President of the United States. I'm sure you thought about that. What do you tell those people? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting to me. My experience is actually at the federal level. I served as a federal executive, and that's what the president is. The president is a federal executive. And so my experience is both at the federal level and at the local level. And, you know, I have a strong vision for the future of the country. It's also true that we have a, a good candidate, M.J. Hagar, who's going to run against John Cornyn. And um, so, you know, a lot of us believe that we have a shot of winning Texas uh, in 2020 at the senatorial level and also at the presidential level. And, and let me ask you finally then, what just sort of teeing you up, I guess, but you're kind to spend some time with us. Um, you've thought a lot about this and you've been out on the stump. What do you think is at stake for America in 2020? Whether this country is going to continue to expand opportunity for everybody or we're going to be divided and narrow opportunity for people based on their faith or what they look like, how long they've been in the country. You know, are we going to become the America that lives up to the greatest ideals of our founding documents? Or are we going to become an America that gets mired in division? That's what's at stake. And that's the message that you'll be carrying out there to the American people. Secretary Julian Castro, it's good of you to join us. Thanks so much, and uh, good luck with the debate. Good luck down the road. Thanks a lot, Bill. Good to join you. And that's it for today's edition of the Bill Press Pod. And I think what's clear after talking with Julian Castro, two things. One, housing is a very serious issue facing this country, affecting millions of American families. And two... It's so serious a problem, it's a wonder more people aren't talking about it. And a wonder that the media practically ignores the issue. But I think Julian Castro is right. If basic, quality, affordable health care is a human right and not a privilege, then so is affordable housing a human right and not a privilege. And until we agree on that premise, 
that housing is a basic right enjoyed by all Americans, we will never solve our housing crisis. Again, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Tell your friends about us. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. That really helps us get the word out. Appreciate it very much. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.